a lot of mission work can be drudgery. Um, knocking doors can get old. Trying to stop people on the street can get old. Especially in January of 2004 when it got really, really cold out in Saragossa. So when we finally did find success, it was, it was a bit of a relief. It was a bit of an affirmation that you know, we were there for the right reasons and that we were getting the spiritual help that, that we had asked for. In Mosiah chapter 18, verse 30, it says, And now it came to pass that all this was done in Mormon, yea, by the waters of Mormon, dot, dot, dot. How beautiful they are to the eyes of them who came, who there came to the knowledge of their Redeemer. And uh, on that note, let me tell you about my friend Mauricio. This is Welcome to the Faro, Episode 4, Indian Country. On my first day in the MTC, I saw this stone carving that was uh, a replica of some other famous stone carving that David O. McKay had salvaged from a building that was demolished when he was a missionary in Scotland. And it had this saying on it that said, Whate'er thou art, act well thy part. Um, In simpler terms, do your job. Uh, In 2007, when I was walking through a Deseret book in Henderson, I saw a book on the bargain shelf with that title. It cost me about three bucks. It was a transcription of David O. McKay's missionary journal. I thought this would be fascinating to see what the mission was like for a man who would later go on to be called to be the president of the church. And uh, lo and behold, it was very similar to my experience as a missionary. Not to say that I had this transcendent holy crap, Graham's going to be a prophet someday type experience, but more that, you know, David O. McKay as a missionary was, was a pretty normal missionary. Uh, He hated tracting. He hated knocking on doors. He would write in his journal that it made him gloomy. And uh, I thought, man, I thought that just kind of came with the territory of a missionary and you were supposed to suck it up and you were supposed to be good at just sucking it up and not letting it bother you. It bothered me a lot getting rejected all the time. I had a hard time with that. And there were days when I could just kind of shrug it off and I kind of got into a rhythm and I'd stop people on the street and I would understand that it was cold outside or that they were in a hurry and they had somewhere to be. And I would I would kind of write it off to that. But there were other times when the rejection just, it, it got to you. You have this important thing that you're trying to share with somebody and they've got other things on their mind. And the worst part is there are things that you could you can understand that. You know, he said that there was a, a time when he was trying to hand out tracts. They called them, you know, pamphlets. You know, that's what they called the pamphlets, you know, handing out a, a tract or a church publication. And he knocked on a door in this rundown part of town. And this uh, lady answered the door. And you could tell that she was poor and broke and that she, that she had kids to feed. And he tries to hand her one of these pamphlets. And she looks at it and she goes, can I feed my family with this? And she wasn't, you know dropping a fat burn on him or anything it was it was a sincere question like that was her main concern it was obviously something she had a problem doing and he just he walked away from that feeling like crap you know it it doesn't affect your testimony or your or your your knowledge of spiritual truths but it does hurt that you can't do more for these people you are called to preach the gospel 
obviously you you would really like to be able to drop a humanitarian package on every single person you come across who needs it and trust me in spain we came across plenty of them most of them were eastern europeans west africans south americans uh you know the the immigrant population you you wish that you could do that but that was not what you were called to do and you didn't have the resources to do it and sometimes it just it really weighed you down when when that was the reason um or, or really for any reason that people rejected the, the message that you were sharing. So a couple of years after my mission, coming across that book and reading about President McKay's experience when he was my age, I it, it kind of gave me some relief. Um, it gave me some context. It helped me to understand that, in a sense, this was part of the process. I was not the first missionary to ever be rejected, and I surely would not be the last. I never threw in the towel on door knocking, and I never, you know, stopped doing street contacts. Sometimes I would kind of get a sense of like, I'd, you're supposed to stop everybody, right? And sometimes I would get a sense of like, okay, if I stop this guy, nothing's going to happen. And I did let people go by, uh, you know, as time went on. Later on, I would have companions that would help me kind of rectify that habit and say, no, you're, you're here to t teach everybody. You're not here to kind of rely on your own judgment all the time. You're here to rely on the spirit, and you should be trying to share with everybody. But any and all of the success that I had as a missionary, if we're measuring success in terms of people who, you know, really sat down and, and listened and accepted the challenges and the invitations to read and to pray on their own and all that stuff, that came through member work. There was a member in Tharagotha that... Elder France and I were working with. His name was Cesar, uh, the Spanish version of, of Caesar. Uh, because he was Equatorian, I didn't use the the lisp when I was saying his name because that's not how he said his name. With with names, you know, Elder France and I decided we weren't going to call him Cesar. We were going to call him Cesar because you know that's that was his name for himself. Uh, he introduced us to a friend of his named Mauricio, who was around our age. I think he was eighteen or so. And uh, he had just moved to Spain from Ecuador, and uh, Cesar, you know, being the generous soul that he was, and and uh, a faithful member of the church, would would bring friends to us and say, "Hey, you know, this is my friend so and so. I've I've told him about the church. Uh, could you you know, teach him a lesson or share a gospel message with him or something?" And and uh, we were very grateful to him for doing that. Uh, the governments of Ecuador and Spain, so far as I understood it had some kind of arrangement that made it easier for Ecuadorians to immigrate there versus, you know, other South Americans. There were, there were, a, there were, there was a large amount of immigrants from Ecuador as far as the, the South American percentage goes. We, we met them all the time. Um, there was kind of a difference between like your, your regular run of the mill Ecuadorian, I guess. And then the ones that were, uh, I didn't get, quite a, a detailed explanation on this but like i guess they had a higher percentage of of native blood uh, a blood quantum such as it were uh, and they lived kind of in the old tribal ways the pre-columbian ways um cesar and mauricio joked that they they wore their ties backwards because they they kept long hair in in ponytails and they wore kind of these uh you know tribal adornments colors and things like that in their clothing um they were quichua uh, also, as far as I was given to understand, there was a difference between Quechua and Quechua. One of them was Bolivian, one of them was, or, or Peruvian, one of them was Equatorian. Um, you know, but they were, they were rural, they had their own language, they did also speak Spanish. I tried to get Cesar and Mauricio to 
teach us some of these phrases. I remember they, they would sound like Imanaja Kashkangi or Kikinda Huyani. And some of these, were, I, I didn't dare use them like casually because I wrote them down in my journal that I can't find now. One of them, one of my many mission journals, one of them was like, hello, how are you? And the other one is I'm deeply in love with you. So I wouldn't just you know, throw one down on somebody if I ever ran into another Kichwa, but it was interesting to write these phrases down because he would tell me like, here's how you say this. Here's how you say this. And I'd write a note in my, in my little notebook and I'd ask him, wait, how do you spell this word? And he'd say, um, there's not a way to spell it. We don't write this language down. And after my second or third time of asking him how to spell a particular word in Quechua, Mauricio was just like, escribir no sabemos. We don't know how to write this. It was purely a spoken language, an old, you know, tribal Native American, Native South American language. Like that's that's how deep the roots ran for these people, and their customs were very important to them. But uh, you know, they also spoke Spanish and obviously traveled the world in search of work and ways to kind of improve their life. And that was how Cesar and Mauricio and and you know all the other Quechuas that we met in in Saragossa. That's how they came to be there and how we ended up teaching them. And uh, Mauricio ended up getting baptized while I was there. And, uh, you know, we, we kept teaching him the new lessons and he was fellowshipped by a couple of other Equatorian members who had joined the church. And so it was, it was really affirming to see success from, from missionary work, you know, even though it wasn't from what we spent 85% of our time doing. Um, I would go on to continue to have a, a stronger and stronger testimony of member missionary work because, yeah, in, in all the time that I was there, I never taught somebody all the way to baptism that I had stopped on the street or a door that I had knocked on. Um, it was important to show that diligence and to show that willingness to find people that way, but we we tried to always work with the members and get referrals from the members because... Uh, that was ultimately where I had success. So that month in January, uh, we got Mauricio through all of the lessons. He accepted the invitation to get baptized. He was doing the reading on his own. Um, Elder Peterson from the other district in the zone came over and did the interview. And then uh, we had Victor, a new member, baptize Mauricio because you... We could, I guess, have you know a missionary baptize somebody, but the whole point of fellowshipping was to have... Uh, you know, members make friends or have converts make friends with members in the area because, you know, missionaries would come and go. You'd be in an area three, four or five months and then you'd, you'd get sent to somewhere else. And you wanted these new converts to have friendships with people that were always going to be there, you know, to, to put roots down there and, and build a strong community, a strong ward, a strong branch that way. So uh, we were there for his baptism. You know, it wasn't Elder Francis who had the baptism. It was Victor who did, and uh, and that was my my first experience seeing somebody accept the gospel and accept that covenant as a missionary. Now there were also plenty of friends that I made in the area just from doing you know, street contacts, and and I say friends in the in the sense that. We would teach them gospel things, and maybe they weren't that interested, but they still wanted to come to like the English classes that we would teach once a week. That was kind of a, a service that we gave to the areas wherever we were. And so we, we would make friends with these guys, and if they wanted to get together on, on our preparation day and you know, maybe kick a soccer ball around for an hour or so, we'd do that. Uh, two such people were named Jonas and Nico, and they were Romanians. 
And uh, Elder France and I found them uh, doing contacts one night, street contacts in our area. Uh, we were walking along, you know, a couple of white guys in suits and ties and trench coats, and we stopped these uh, these two dudes as they're walking down the street, and we're asking them, "Hey, how's it going? What's your name? Where are you guys from?" And and uh, Yonut's got this kind of scared look on his face, and he's like, "It, it doesn't matter." And he and he walked off, and we're like, "Oh, okay, that was weird." And then a second later, he comes back chasing us down, and he he switches to English, and he goes. He goes, hey, hey, sorry, uh, sorry about that. We were confused about who you were. And we're like, wait, what, you speak English? He goes, yeah, I, I speak English pretty well. I learned from watching movies and Cartoon Network. <laughs> I'm like, wait, wait, wait a second. You you know who Johnny Bravo is? And he goes, oh, yeah, I, I know totally who Johnny Bravo is. I'm like, okay, we're going to be friends. Let's sit down and talk. No, so uh, they were Romanians, and they were there illegally, which was common for most Romanians that we ran into. They, they had uh, immigrated from Romania over to Spain. Romania was due to enter the European Union, and so they would eventually get legal status, but there were more employment opportunities in Spain, so they kind of figured they would just jump the gun and find what work that they could in Spain and and uh, accumulate some money, bring their fan- friends and family over, and that sort of thing. They were about our age. I think Jonitz was 19 or 20, and Nico was 21. Uh, Jonitz was a single guy. His mom had come with him. Nico had a family back in Romania. Nico didn't speak a whole lot of Spanish, but uh, Jonitz spoke a little bit of Spanish, but his English was really good. He had a he had a strong Romanian accent, but he was able to make himself understood very, very well in English. He was very fluent, and so he showed up to the Spanish classes that we were doing. Um, we didn't hang out with Nico a whole lot. He was there for about two weeks before he kind of got frustrated with the uh, the lack of employment options and the fact that he missed his wife and his kids. So he went back, but we ended up, um, you know, continuing to teach units for a while. Um, he he wasn't too interested in uh, learning about religion for about the same reasons that um, the Spaniards weren't too interested. Uh, I couldn't give you a whole ton of details on Romanian history, even though I met a whole lot of Romanians while I was there. All I knew is that they were as broke and as illegal as a lot of uh, South Americans that that came to Spain, and so uh, their concerns were more primarily economic. And uh, it sounded like they were kind of a lot of the ones that I taught were kind of tired of religion. Again, going back to the same reasons that Spaniards were, um, Romanians also had a much closer brush with and dealing with uh, communism, so uh, that kind of colored their their perception of power structures, as it were, but in, in the end, Jonitz was more of a friend than than anything else. And like I said, he'd show up to uh, the English classes, and and uh, his English was very advanced, so he'd end up, you know, kind of helping the other students, and we'd we'd play soccer a little bit. And it uh, it was great to meet people, you know, kind of on those terms, on that level. These are the ones that I had to remind myself were more like the. Uh, What's the right metaphor to use here? It was more like planting seeds. Um, for some people, they weren't going to openly accept and embrace the gospel on their first contact with it. Um, maybe it was more of my role for them to have a, a positive experience with members of the church to make them more open to feeling the spirit when they came to our meetings or when they had associations with us. You know, we That goes back to the lesson that President Watson was trying to teach me a lot early on in my mission where, you know, I, I needed to be a dignified 
representative of of Jesus Christ. I could still be Graham Bradley, but I had to be there as you know Elder Bradley. I had to you know have a desire to to serve people and to show them charity, you know as as much as I could because that was the conduit to them you know, feeling the spirit and being open and receptive to the things that we were trying to teach. Now, I've spoken a lot about the fact that I was there to teach and I was there to learn how to teach, but I want to kind of segue sideways into some of the things that I learned from people there and not just cultural things, not just, you know, the history of Spain and their, their recent struggles with dictatorships and forced religion and similar experiences that other Europeans had because, uh, and I'll mention this little factoid probably several times throughout the course of this series, but I, I met people from over 70 countries while I was in Spain and most of them were immigrants in search of work uh, or a, a more stable society and government. Most of those were illegal immigrants and, you know, that brought a a certain type of people with it, mainly the people that were trying to keep their their heads low and that they were always trying to uh, basically, you know, anytime somebody walked around with a shirt and a tie and got in their in their proximity, if they didn't bolt and run, they'd just, you know, try to, you know, be nice, be charitable and, and show like, hey, you know, we're not here causing any trouble. We're just we're we're here to work. We're here to be good citizen people. Well, there was one neighborhood close to uh, La Basilica del Pilar, that if it was anywhere in America, it would pretty much be condemned and, and blown up and destroyed. But these old buildings were still standing and probably illegally had power and plumbing hooked up to them. But they were, you know, run down, not just paint peeling off the walls, but walls peeling off the walls. Uh, but we had gotten a couple of contacts in the area and we went door knocking through this building that was just a hellhole. Um, I think Elder France and I had looked through the the area book and we'd seen some notes from previous elders that said, hey, we know so-and-so in this building. And these places are known kind of for their high turnover of occupants. You don't really know who the landlord is. Uh, I'm sure the people who live there have somebody that they're paying. But um, we we go knocking through one of these buildings and you know, no joke, you can hear voices in a dozen different languages inside these apartments talking and and being boisterous and whatnot. One thing that I noticed, especially about Chinese people, was they they didn't really distinguish between an indoor voice and an outdoor voice. If they were on a bus, if they were in a uh, an apartment, whatever, they kind of always talked at the same volume. And we go uh, knocking through this building one day, and it's not the door that we're knocking at, but... Um, you know, one of these doors on these floors, you, you hear a bunch of Chinese people having a conversation at the top of their lungs, and one of them goes and, you know, opens the door to, you know, presumably go to his job or something. He opens the door and he sees us a few doors down, and once again, we're clean-cut, part in our hair, shirt and ties, and trench coat guys. He takes one look at, one look at us, shuts up, and shuts the door. And I have to think that it was similar to the Yonitz and Nico situation where, they assumed by our attire that we were government officials and they wanted no part of that. So it was just a, we'll, we'll sit in here and pretend that we're not here and, and, uh, wait and wait for the, the suits to go away. 
And I got, I wouldn't say that that was a, that was something that I encountered all the time, but I encountered it enough to know what it looked like when somebody saw us and kind of bolted the other direction, especially if they weren't a Spaniard. But there was one particular door in this building and it was, this was still, you know, early in my mission. So I wasn't as good at distinguishing and remembering names of different people, especially from different cultures. You know, Spanish people have the same hundred names. And so you, you kind of get familiar with it, but when you're dealing with Africans and you hear a name that you might hear one time in your entire life, oddly enough, it doesn't stick, especially because you hear 50 new names in a week. Anyway, what I'm getting at is we go and knock this door and uh, it's kind of late at night on a weeknight. It's probably 8.30, 9. And keep in mind, we go out uh, you know, working on the streets until 10 p.m., and uh, there's these three or four African guys, probably a few years older than us, that open the door and they see us and they see the suits and ties, but they see our name tags. They know specifically that we're missionaries, that we're, we're there from a Christian church, and they are delighted to see us. And I'm not talking like laying it on thick or anything. They are just, they're smiling ear to ear. They are happy to welcome in men of God and they, they say, yeah, come inside, come inside. I don't remember them speaking a whole lot of English. I want to say that we had conversations with them in, in Spanish and, you know, whatever language the, you know, that they were speaking tribally, obviously not that we were speaking it with them, but most of the time when you met somebody from Ghana, they spoke English. Uh, I don't remember speaking a whole bunch of English with these guys, but they let us into their apartment and they had nothing. We're talking crates and boxes for furniture there was a little kitchenette with a stove that worked. They were making dinner for themselves. We got to talking. They they did some kind of construction work um, you know, because it was the easiest work for them to find. And they insisted that we sit down and we share some of the food they have, some of their, their meat and sauce and rice. And it was delicious. Couldn't tell you what it was called. Couldn't even tell you what was in it. They made it. They made it well. It was what they subsisted on. And... Uh, we could tell pretty quickly that we were not the first group of missionaries or proselyters that had been in their home because they, they had a, a little wall where they had kind of tacked up or taped up all the different tracts that other church uh, you know, missionary folk, I don't always know what the title is for them, but other, other churches had brought by. Uh, evangelists, um, Testigos de Jehová, uh, yeah, you know, at least two or three others. And any time that there was a picture of Jesus, these guys taped it up to the wall to have something to look at. And, you know, we shared with them a couple of our tracts, and I think we gave them one of our spare copies of the Book of Mormon. It was in Spanish. Those are the ones we lugged around because, hey, you know, we had been called to preach the gospel in the Spanish language. We didn't really carry English materials around with us, but we left it with them. We went home and... I remember writing in my journal that night, holy crap, um, these guys had nothing and they were sharing it with us and they wanted us to share it. They, 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 these first world Christian strangers, they, they wanted to share what they had with them. And growing up, I don't think I realized how well off my family was. You know, my, my dad was making well into six figures in the 90s selling paper. I mean, he was making doctor money. He could be retired right now, but that's a whole nother story. Um, you know, I, I thought that we were decently middle class and we were, 
a few levels above that you know, as far as the tax brackets go. And I, I understood generally that there were people in the world that were, you know, poor and poorer than we were or that didn't have, you know, what we had. But there's, there's always going to be a difference between understanding something in theory and seeing it in practice. And, you know, somebody in that situation sharing with somebody like me, that is, that is selflessness and charity that I have never had the opportunity to demonstrate. And I don't think I ever want to be, to be frank. Um, it was a very, very humbling experience. I'm not, or at least especially back then, I was not really given to to crying and being overwhelmed by emotion like that. But that was definitely my response when I was writing in my journal that night, thinking that these people are truly selfless and people like them are the ones that I have something to learn from. We we tried following up with them uh, a few days later, didn't get an answer at the door. Like I said, transients, don't know what happened. Maybe they moved on. Maybe they had to move, move on. Maybe they got carried away. Um, I did see that happen in areas, you know, elsewhere in the mission. There was a, a guy who was a member of our, of our ward in Girona who was Romanian and was there illegally and immigration was cracking down in 2005 and they got him. They sent him home, home, uh, send him to his home country. I think he'd kind of made his home in Spain. So sensitive issue there. And it was one of those that kind of tested my, uh, my confidence in natural institutions, but that's a subject for another day. Um, I just wanted to share that particular story in case you got the impression that I only went over there to teach everybody that I ran into that I didn't that I wasn't out there learning things you know learning things that I as a messenger of Jesus Christ maybe should have already known and you know again I can read things like that in the scriptures all day long I can read about charity and selflessness and giving of one's own substance but there are things that you just don't know until you see it happen you see it happen up close and you are a part of it and that's when it becomes real that's when it really becomes something that you understand that was when I realized what I had to learn from them As January crawled on, uh, it was mostly characterized by cold, humid weather. The Ebro River runs right through the middle of Saragossa, and the level of it goes up and down, fluctuates. And uh, the very muddy, mossy banks, when they're exposed to open air, they stink. And if it's a very cold day, they fill the city with fog. Uh, You couldn't see more than... 70 80 yards ahead of you and that fog would cut right through your clothing um, and it would it would just chill you to the bone it felt like needles were stabbing you in the ears there was one day when we were going out and i just couldn't take it anymore elder france and i ducked into a store and bought a pair of gloves and earmuffs which you know earmuffs weren't my thing being a a kid from the desert but man i needed them I, i just couldn't do it anymore and uh that's that's what the weather like was like in Zarg in, in January. 
we, we learned to put up with it, though. It was just the nature of the beast. One other cool thing, though, that we got to do, and President Watson told us about this at the beginning of our missions, was while we were there, he would allow us to attend uh, one professional soccer game and one professional bullfight. Uh, bullfighting has kind of come to its end run there in Spain. It's been this cultural thing for centuries, but um, you know, humanitarian-type concerns and animal rights concerns have, have pushed their way to the forefront. And after seeing one of these fights... Um, I never attended one live. I've seen them on TV though. And it's much less of, you know, a, a man versus beast type fair fight show of skill type thing. And much more of a, of a theatrical slaughter. These bulls don't really have a fighting chance and it just, it, it's a, it's a bit of a cinematic torture. And, um, as much as I'm a, you know, kill the cow, eat the steak type guy making a sport of it, uh, I, I can definitely see the arguments against it. I, th I think, uh, I'd like to think that we live in a little bit more civilized time with that and, or than that. And the era for that has passed. So, um, I would later get a chance to attend a bullfight, but it was in Saragossa where I had also seen my soccer game and I was thinking, Oh, you know, I, I don't want to just, you know, knock these right out in the first six months of my mission. Well, lo and behold, I, never really got the chance to go see it after that because I spent the rest of my mission in smaller towns and the bullfights had to come to where there was, you know, a big arena for it. And Saragossa ended up having one, but in January of 04, uh, we did go to a soccer game. One of the many leagues that they have over there in Europe, especially in Spain is called, uh, La, La Copa del Rey de España, uh, the King's cup league, or maybe it's just a tournament. I don't know. I don't know all the many tiers and le levels of soccer, but it, it wasn't the main Liga. It was it was a different contest. And uh, Saragossa, the home team, was was uh, in a death match with Barcelona, the mission capital. And they had won a game against Barcelona in in Barcelona. And the second part of this two part game was in Zarg. And we got tickets to go. It was you know twenty five euros. So we all went one night as a zone. And I was maybe five rows back from the goal box on, on one side. And it was just incredible. These, these guys were amazing athletes. It was like watching, you know, ninjas bend a ball. Uh, final score was one, one Zarg tied, but because they had the win in bars, they, they advanced out of that. I think it was the, the semifinal and they would end up going, you know, going to Madrid and beating them for the, the Copa del Rey de España. So I was there to watch Zarg win that. And I think they got relegated a few years later. I really wasn't into sports at all back then, least of all soccer, but it was great to go to a game and, and just see that up close, see guys that were, were awesome at their sport. And so that kind of closed out January for me. On a final note, this is where I'm going to share probably the most special thing that happened in January and one of the more solemn experiences that I've had in my life and especially as a missionary. I told you that when I got my mission call, uh, I saw that I was going to Spain and I, I had had this recurring series of dreams that, you know, prior to that, that I had opened up my call and that the name of the place started with an S. And so it was, it was cool to see that bear out. Um, I don't normally have dreams like that, especially over and over again, that turn out to you know, come true. 
Um, you know, I have plenty of daydreams, but that's not the same thing. It's something you, you focus on and you want, and then you can put in the work to make it happen. Dreams like this are more of uh, a message. They're more direct, and they're, they're a, a strong part of my testimony. January of 2004 was the first time that I had a dream that would probably come back and visit me five or six times during the time that I was out. It was strange at first, and then when it happened again at six months, at eight months, at a year, at a year and a half, um, my conviction of it grew stronger and stronger, and and uh, it reminded me that, you know, I, I needed to put in as much work as I could and, and be the, the full-time missionary that I needed to be. Um, let me think of where to bring this. There was a a portrait studio in Saragossa where we would take our camera film to get developed so we could get pictures to send home. Uh, I hadn't bought a digital camera before my mission. I bought a, a Pentax because it was 60 or 70 bucks and I should have just bitten the bullet and you know, dropped 250 on a Kodak or something. I ended up doing that later on. Um, but while we were at this portrait studio, Elder France and I, I saw this, you know, cheap little photo album and I thought, you know, I'll, I'll buy that and I'll keep some prints in that, uh, you know, as I go and build a photo album throughout my mission. I had this dream that I was home from my mission and I was showing everybody my pictures and they were all excited I was back and I opened up that particular photo album it had like an elephant on it or something and I was going to show everybody my pictures except one problem those pictures stopped right at four months and I suddenly had this sinking feeling in my stomach oh crap I was only there for four months I didn't finish my mission they're going to be looking for me I'm not supposed to be here and uh it was it was very stark, it was very real, and I woke up and I, I remember thinking about it all that day. Um, I needed to not worry so much about what was going on at home, and not just with my family, but also with my friends and with the things that I might have been doing, you know, back in Henderson. And it was odd that I, that I felt like I had a kind of tug at all to worry too much about home, like obviously I missed it, but... I, I felt conflicted over the fact that I wanted to be a missionary. I accepted the call to be a missionary. And yet I found myself thinking about home a lot. And I didn't want to do that. And then that dream came to me that, you know, if if I'm, if I'm not focused, then I might as well not be there. And if I do go back, which, you know, I was not contemplating at all. It, it was, and that's probably what, what added to the... Uh, the intrigue of this for me. It's not like I was contemplating going back, but the message was very loud and clear that I was not to go back. I was to finish the call that I had accepted. And the way to apply what I was learning from this was to, to really keep my feet on the ground, my head out of the clouds, and, and always be looking for people to teach, to always be trying to share this message. And again, I would have this, this dream a handful of more times while I was out. Not necessarily in response to any particular instance. It was just a, a periodic reminder from my Father in Heaven that, you know, you, you need to be here. 
if you go back and you've only got as much time as you've been out, you know, under your belt, if you've, if you've only got, you know, six months of journals and memories to show for it, then you'll, you'll know that you weren't there for all the time that you were supposed to be. I understand that this is a sensitive issue for some people to hear because I've got friends that, that didn't finish their, their full missions, you know, the full two-year mission for various reasons. Uh, most often, most common for, for medical reasons. Um, there were a couple of guys that left from my ward just two years ago, the ward that I'm in now, guys that got sent to Spanish-speaking missions who, uh, you know, I helped them brush up on their Spanish before they left and they came back a year and a half later because of the COVID-19 thing. And, you know, they were called to serve for 24 months. They only got 18 months into it. And then the conditions were such that, you know, the, the church called that a full mission. And, you know, they were allowed to, to wrap up early and, and come home and get on with their lives. Uh, some of my friends who finished their missions because of, you know, a, a medical discharge struggled with the feeling of that for, for years after the fact because... You know, it's it's easy to feel unworthy because like oh man I I was supposed to be out for two years I was only out for six months and then I got you know an exploding colon or something it, it happens and you know the apostles have addressed this Elder Holland has has addressed this ultimately you know if you know you did everything that you could and if it was medical it was medical I even got sick a couple of times and and you know lost days and maybe a week and a half of, of work because, you know, I had something that I just couldn't shake and I felt bad that I wasn't out working. Um, you've got that desire to serve and that's, that's good. And, you know, you would know and God knows if you would be doing the work if physically you could. Um, me, I physically could. I never had, you know, anything medical threaten my mission service. For me, it was it was all my own dedication. Was I really going to focus 100% on what I was doing? And the first few months of my mission were kind of characterized by, you know, on, on one level, learning to overcome that temptation to be distracted, to that urge to think too much about my friends back across the ocean, back across the continent. They had their lives, I had my calling, and I needed to do it. And I'm, I'm grateful that I had that particular experience. As I said in episode one, uh, there were only three different instances where this kind of recurring dream bit post, uh, popped up in my life. Getting my mission call, being on my mission, and then the third one had to do with, you know, with who I married, and, and that's not really germane to the subject of this podcast, and it's kind of personal besides, but these experiences with dreams on my mission kind of helped me to recognize that same thing when it was really important, when it, when it came down to making the most important decision of my life, and that was, you know, who I would marry. And uh, it was one of the many ways in which, you know, missionary service kind of prepared me for important decisions for the rest of my life. The reason that I'm bringing all of this up is that... What's the right way to say this? On the most fundamental level, I'm not any more important to God than you are. I, I maybe have done different things than you have in terms of, you know, putting in the work to 
approach God and build a relationship with Him and and be open to uh, and receptive to you know answers from Him. But anybody can do that. Anybody can do what I have done spiritually. That's one of the beautiful things about the gospel is that it is accessible to all of us and and we all can you know, meet the terms, meet the requirements of it. And if we do, our Father in Heaven has important things for us to do and He's not going to let us flounder. If we're doing everything that we can, He's going to be there to, to nudge us when we really need it, to point us in the right direction. And I know that because I've seen it and I've lived it, and you can too. That will do it for this week on Welcome to the Faro. Thank you all for listening. And if you've got any questions or comments or things you want to share, you can email me at faropodcast at gmail.com. Until then, keep the faith, and I'll see you next week.